Well, hello everybody, and welcome to episode five of Yes ABS. I hope to have some exciting facts for you today. Um, I've, I'm hitting some some new areas today to try and throw Paul off. Oh, now well, this is interesting because <laughs> we've covered quite a few subjects already, and mm. all that I've deduced from that is that you can't explain anything scientific, <laughs> which is exactly why there's no scientific facts in here at all. So I'm, I'm wondering what subjects you've got left to cover: cookery. Uh, well, I'm back to history again. All so, right, okay. So, right. Well, there's that. I've got that going for us. <laughs> uh, a couple of others. Uh, it's more contemporary facts for you today. Oh, all right, okay. So I thought I'd try and try a different tack. Okay. But we'll see how things go. What sort of facts you got for me today, Jones? Um, I've got quite a few written down. I don't know which ones I'll go with. I've definitely <clears> got some <throat> literature. Um, and This is fast becoming the history and literature facts yeah, podcast. Yeah, we, we need some other voices in this. <laughs> Maybe some music... A bit mm. of history's in there. Oh, I've got some good ones written down. I don't know which ones I'll throw at you yet, though. Well, I'm going to hit you with one first. Okie doke. On that beautiful segue... I'm braced. ...into the first fact. Have you ever heard of a marathon that's run entirely on water? <laughs> no, but uh, now I have. Well, I've got you on a technicality a bit there, because this is actually the North Pole Marathon. So all right, okay. It's all frozen water, so I was technically correct there. Oh, you joker! <laughs> do 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 do. <laughs> so this is a marathon that is run. It's been run every year since two thousand and two, and they try to run it as close as possible to the exact geographic North Pole as they can get. Okay. Now, if you know your geothermic currents, but like the back of my hand, <laughs> you'll know that. Actually, you might not know. Did you know the North Pole moves position? I did know that. Oh, well, oh God, well, there you go. That's ruined, that's ruined that first. A-level <laughs> geography has taught me something useful at once. Well, some of us didn't do A-level geography, Paul. <laughs> did you do A-level geography? Yeah, I got an A in it. Oh, well, that's because you probably answered the question about geothermal yeah. currents that move the North Pole. All of my facts today are about central business districts. <sighs> <sighs> Jesus, whips. Yeah. Could be a long podcast yeah. today, guys. <laughs> it's the sound of hundreds of people switching off. <laughs> hundreds. We'd be lucky. <laughs> the sound of single digits numbers. <laughs> sound of old parents closing <laughs> the phone. <laughs> so you might know. Uh, it, so the North Pole can move around 34 mm. miles ish. Oh, uh, no, I didn't know it was as much as that. That's, now that is interesting. It can, depending on how violent the Earth's core is being that particular year. Oh, might have just made that bit up, actually. Uh, yeah. But, uh, the, the, so there was this adventurer guy called Richard Donovan. He said, Hey, I've run a load of marathons. Where, where's the best marathon to run? Mm. So he decided to run one at the North Pole. Mm -hmm. And it has been known in the past that the ice has started to break up. At while, the North Pole? Yes. While they, wow. be, because it's difficult to explain this part. Mm -hmm. You've not caught me out on anything here. Don't, don't, you be, don't you be looking at me thinking you've caught me out mm -hmm. on anything there. I forget the exact reason, but he told a story of how he was running across the ice and they were having to jump across crevasses where the ice had broken up. So it's quite a dangerous marathon. It can get down to be minus 29 degrees Celsius as mm -hmm. well. And would you like to know how much it costs for the pleasure to run the North Pole Marathon. Ooh, I'm going to guess it's <clears throat> at least four figures. You are correct. It is at least four figures. It is 16,000 euros you've got oh. to pay. Well, that covers your flights to base camp. Right. From Svalbard in Norway. Oh, right, okay. There. So there you go. You're going to get a flight right, out okay. of it. Or if you pay in full up front, you get a discount and it's only 15,000 euros. Oh, but are you, is this podcast sponsored? 
<laughs> so if you'd like to run this year's <laughs> North Pole Marathon. www. <laughs> okay. Svalbard, right. Okay. So is it ran near? Oh, no, it's ran at Yeah, it's as close as they can get to it. Right, okay. Oh, they, right. And they run around the same circuit about... 10 times so it's about two no i was going to ask about that so it's not sort of like 22 <clears throat> mile in a straight line did they no of... because then they'd never get back yeah from the north pole then they just they're just <laughs> just running 22 miles straight into <laughs> arctic wastes with no way to go and rescue them i was wondering i was wondering about that because that's mm. perhaps not the wisest ploy mm-hmm. so is it sort of like a circular track and you just it is it's about a two mile circular track right so you run that sort of mm. was it 11? is it 22 miles 26. 26. 26. Yeah. Right, okay. So that that's that's already cleared one point up. Would you like to know what the prize is for winning? I would. You get a, a t shirt and a medal. A t shirt is always useful at the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> you get a t shirt and you get the ability actually, that's, to dive that's, exposure. That's just for participating. I don't know what you get for actually winning the marathon. Oh. Probably the respect of saying I won the North Pole mm. Marathon. And the chance to go home. <laughs> oh my God, my life savings. <laughs> what have I done? Okay, this sounds plausible. What was the guy's name again? Ooh, Richard Donovan. Do you have any more information about him? Uh, not too much, but I do know he was the only person to run it in the first year. Because nobody wanted to join him. Right, and did he pay himself for the <laughs> It, see now, uh, uh, fitness fanatics and things like a bit of mm. endurance. It's like that that one that marathon that sort of ran across the Sahara or something. Yeah, um, I think I'm doing that next year actually. <laughs> <laughs> and by doing it, you mean sitting thinking about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, and there are all sorts of weird and wonderful races, I guess. And this does sound like. But see, now running in Arctic gear, mm. I wouldn't have thought was very plausible because I've, I've seen um, Life in the Freezer with David Attenborough <laughs> and he wears lots of layers and I can't imagine running in that. I find mm-hmm. it hard enough to run in shorts, <laughs> never mind sort of survival suits. Mm. Minus 29. Yes. Okay. And j- this whole jumping over crevasses. Well, I don't know if I've exaggerated that a bit. Leaping over crevasses, you've really <laughs> maybe overselling it. Overselling it there, right? Okay, yeah. That, now this is this is difficult mm. because it sounds plausible. Yeah, people would do it. When did it start? Two thousand two. Yes, two thousand two. That sounds plausible. Flying from Svalbard. Mm-hmm. That sounds plausible. And give you the name of the Russian base camp because the, it's the Russians who set this camp up. Everywhere. Right, Camp Barneo. Mm. Spoken like a native. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if it has to have a Russian <laughs> barrio. See, there is a lot of plausibleness to all of this, but I also think that there's a lot of questions left unanswered. Running in mm. Arctic gear, I'm not so sure about. The circular track is a good detail because that, that makes sense. Mm. <sighs> Are you ready for an answer? Yeah, this is difficult because I could really see mm. this going either way. I think I might get this wrong, but... Go for it. I'm going to say BS. I'm going to say you've made this up. It wasn't just because I said jumping over crevasses, was no, it? No, <laughs> it wasn't. It's the running in Arctic gear. Okay, final answer, BS. Yeah, I'm going to say it's BS. It's actually true. Oh, I knew I would get it wrong. Oh, I've, oh, I've got a good feel about this episode. Wow. I've chosen facts like this today. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so really, that's a good fact. I'm, I'm 
on the borderline of plausibility with this week's episode. <laughs> so many details, like the cost <laughs> and all that. Are you sure you're not sponsored by this, dude? <laughs> well, actually, wow. you can go to the website. Uh, what's it called? Ah, it has a special name, but I've not written that down. But oh, well, if if Richard Donovan wants that read out on this podcast, you have to pay us. <laughs> well, he's making bank off this. <laughs> yeah, thing. that's true. Bloody hell! Yeah, sixteen thousand a pop. Open your wallet, Richard. <laughs> Come on. Our, <laughs> support a fledgling podcast. Our four listeners would like, you might get one of them. <laughs> I might try it. I, I, I'd give it a go. Okay. I'm one nil down. I don't like that. So I'm going to come fighting back with uh, one of my subjects, which mm. is literature. A very poor subject for me. I don't think I've got any one of your literature facts <laughs> right yet. So the fact is that George Bernard Shaw mm-hmm. uh, hated one of his plays so much that he carried the only manuscript around with uh, of it with him everywhere for four years mm-hmm. because he was so terrified that someone would read it. Now, already, straight out the gate, I thought George Bernard Shaw was the one who was really a woman. <laughs> That's so, George Eliot. <laughs> so you could now literally tell me anything and I'm, I'm on the back foot already. Okay. So George Bernard Shaw was born in uh, 400 AD on, <laughs> on Mars. Oh, fascinating. I do love the background information we give out on these facts. <laughs> no, uh, so George Bernard Shaw, 1856, he was born. He was born mm-hmm. in Ireland. He died in 1950. I didn't realise he lived really? so long. Um, you must know some of these plays. You wrote Pygmalion. Oh, well, I was in that Pygmalion thing at school, wasn't it? Did you play Eliza Doolittle? <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Pickering, thank you very much. Oh, I played Professor Higgins, the, oh, the, the uh, better part, oh. I believe. Um, yeah, you wrote uh, Pygmalion, wrote Man and Superman, which you might know, which is quite a famous one. Mrs. Warren's Profession, which is a really controversial thing about um, brothel keepers. Well, nothing controversial about that. Yeah, I wrote that in the 1800s. Uh, and you got the Nobel Prize in 1925. Mm. So a very long, uh, illustrious career. Mm. But in 1946, so four years before he died, uh, he wrote a play called The Rooftop Soldier, mm-hmm. um, which was... It, it's listed. I haven't read it. I should point this out, and I haven't, certainly haven't seen it. I was already prepping questions on yeah, this. Yeah, it's listed as a dark comedy, um, and also one of his problem plays. I thought Shakespeare was the only one who had problem plays. But What's a problem play? And this is again. Yeah. This highlights my ignorance of literature. It's like a play that's really difficult to categorize. Mm. So it, it'll be listed as a comedy, but it has really dark themes in it, like Measure for Measure. Uh, so anyway, it's listed as a, a, a very dark, bleak comedy, but it's mm. uh, like a lot of Shaw's work, it was a social commentary as well. It was all about the futility of war, because it was about a returning soldier from the First World War. So this mm-hmm. was sort of written in post-Second World War England. Mm. Uh, but it was about a returning soldier from the First World War who kind of has no network to come back to. He's got mm. no family to come back to. So he moves into an attic room above a house owned by a widow and it's mm. about their relationship mm. the, between the landlady and this returning soldier. So yeah, it was all about war and the effects of war and also about the sort of desperation that was met mm. by returning okay. soldiers, basically. It doesn't sound very funny. I was going to say, you're, you've really sold this yeah, to us, Paul. It's probably why it's listed as a problem play, I guess. And, <laughs> but the bottom line is, is that he hated it. Uh, he wrote it and hated it. Shortly after, we know that he hated it because shortly afterwards he wrote to someone called Sir Lewis Casson, who was a really famous mm-hmm. actor and theatre director at the time, to say that he had written his worst play and that, quote, no human eyes bar mine shall ever bear witness to its offensiveness nor my ineptitude in producing it. 
Ah, I think this is a lie now. <laughs> I don't know. I I've think this is... Oh, go on. No, sorry. Go on. Um, go on. So um, they wrote this to his friend, and we've got that copy of that letter. And he was so terrified that someone would read this manuscript without him knowing it, because by this point, he was really, really famous. He was looked up to as a critic and a commentator and all the rest of it, that he carried the manuscript around with them for four years mm. until he died in 1950. He always carried a leather document wallet around with him anywhere, everywhere, mm. anywhere. Mm that had writing equipment in and all the rest of it. But he kept the manuscript in there. And it was only after he died uh, that the manuscript was found. And Has it ever been made into a play? It's been produced published? once, which was in 1980. By the Paul Jones Lads <laughs> Dance Company. So 1980, the Lyceum Theatre in London, which was the, to celebrate the, the 30th anniversary of his death mm. in 1980. Pretty much all of his plays were staged somewhere around London throughout mm. the year. And there was one performance of it. It's not very long. It's, it only lasted 55 minutes. It's only a, a short sort of two-act mm. playlet. So, yeah, it was put on then, and it's never been produced since, which he'd probably be very happy about, to be perfectly honest. Why did he hate it so much? Was it just because it, it was sounds just the quality really of the writing wasn't mm. up to his usual standards? I suppose he was, like, 90 years old when he wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> he did actually continue writing right mm. until just before he died. He wrote, mm. he, I think he wrote his last play in 1948. Mm. Um, so he did keep writing all the way through to the end and he was a big journalist as well he wrote mm. all kinds of essays and critiques and things right up until the end mm. but yeah he hated this one play the uh, the rooftop soldier so much that it never saw the light of day and he kept the only manuscript with him at all times the only reason I think this is a lie is because mm-hmm. I think you put effort into that quote to think ah this quote that sounds really believable that sounds kind of what he would say that sounds like a 1950s writery kind of quote mm-hmm. and then you've built the lie around this quote because mm-hmm. uh, it's just something's not sitting right with us on this one mm-hmm. even though i'm completely ignorant of george bernard shaw george bernard shaw george bernard shaw yeah. you see that's how ignorant i am of you george bernard shaw name. i've forgotten his name already <laughs> god i want to sound like such a, a moron when this podcast goes <laughs> so he hated this play but why did he carry it around why didn't he log it away somewhere we don't really know it's probably because he liked to continue working on things there was a number mm. of plays that he produced two or three different script versions of and we know mm. that when he was um he spent a lot of time in the states as well as in Britain, and the travel time between the two, you'd often work on older manuscripts and improve them. So he's um, like, just in case? Yeah, so there was I'm always, keeping... he liked to sort of work in progress kind of idea. Soldier on the Roof, this is called. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, it mixed up with Fiddler on the Roof, which is an absolutely perfect work of literature. It's called The Rooftop Soldier. That's the one. Yeah. You see, um, like 90% lean towards, because you've pulled this stunt a few times mm-hmm. where you've gone to literature... You've created this rich tapestry, mm-hmm. and it's turned out you've lied every time. <laughs> you went even so far as to write a cat in the hat book, a Dr. Pa- Seuss book, or part yeah. of it, yeah, Dr. Seuss yeah. book to try and fool us. So yeah, I'm just going to go straight up. Trust my gut on this one. I'm ready to guess. BS. You're saying that's a lie? Yes. It's a lie. Yeah. <sighs> I thought I might have it. I was thinking actually of leaving the quote out. Oh, it's the quote, the quote the story. tipped us over the edge. Yeah. I was like, up until then, I was like, okay. But as soon as that quote, I thought, oh, that sounds like Paul's written that. <laughs> Damn it, I'm not that good a writer. Um, no, there is a, sort of two bases to this, which mm. is quite interesting. The first, I read a while ago about J.D. Salinger, mm. who wrote Catcher in the Rye. Uh, was involved in the DD landings and he had the first really? few chapters in his bag really? during the DD landings, which was a fact I was going to use. Oh, that well would have been so. I didn't know that it's at all. That would have been, been great. Um, and the other one is that um, J. 
George Bernard Shaw did write a play that he absolutely hated. It was called The Fascinating Foundling. Good God, I'm not surprised at that title. <laughs> and he wrote it in 1909, and he subtitled it A Disgrace to the Author. He hated, <laughs> he hated it so much. So it's kind of like in been between the two. Oh, excellent. That was yeah. an interesting... He saw through it. It's a good lie. I'll take that. So it's now 2-0 to me. Yeah, and I'm not happy about this. I told you this is going to be a clean sweep today. <sighs> I'm smashing it today. Okay. It's, I'm mixing history and science today. Right, now, this, two, this... two subjects I know an awful lot about. <laughs> now this might not sound very exciting when I read this out, but I want to tell you about... You can start all of your facts. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you about the tribe that invented superglue. Okay. And it was about 4,000 years ago. They invented super glue. Right. Yes. And they are called the Dolgans. <laughs> <laughs> Which Doctor Who episode is <laughs> The Dolgans. <laughs> okay. Now, the Dolgans are a tribe in roughly in central Siberia, in the area which is in modern day. This is now messing my Russian again. Mm-hmm. Krasnoyarsk Krai. Crack my ass what? <laughs> and Krai. <laughs> Krasnoyarsk cry. Okay, is it all one word? Uh, two words. Krasnoyarsk okay. is the first word, a cry is the second. That's like the Russian name okay. for the, the region where the Dolgans now live. Right. But we didn't really know about this superglue until around the Crimean War, because that was when the Russian Empire was starting to properly expand mm-hmm. in the mid-1800s mm-hmm. into Siberia. They found this tribe, and they noticed they were using this incredibly strong glue mm-hmm. to bind together the ends of spears onto, to make weapons, um, binding, weaving on baskets, just anything, anything that needs glue. Right, okay. And so they thought, hey, maybe we can try that to see, maybe seal some wounds up. All right, okay. Yeah. Uh, because obviously people getting shot in a lot of wars that Russia yeah. was doing. But so they went out of this tribe and tried to ask them, like, how do you make this? And it was basically, it's, you have to put a lot of birch bark in a pit, cover that pit with more bark and dirt, then light a fire on top of it. And then as this birch bark starts to break down in the pit, it's, it creates a very thick tar. Right, that okay. That can then be used as the glue. You've got to use it relatively quickly for right. it to do it to work. Because once it dries, it's quite a, it's very tough. Right. Very solid. So they only found the tribe about the mid-1800s, but scientists have found evidence of them using this glue going back thousands of years beforehand because wow. it's such a tough substance. It lasts quite a long time. Right, okay. And it's waterproof. And some of this tribe would actually use it to, as chewing gum as well. Wow. Uh, so they'd break bits off, let it dry. Because obviously it's... It, it's like gum, it doesn't break down. Right. Unless it's over thousands and thousands of years. They think it could be even earlier than 4,000 years ago they were using this super glue. I'm getting f- far too animated and excited about a fact about glue <laughs> <laughs> than, I, than I have any right to be. But Okay. Yeah, I found it was very effective. It didn't work on wounds. It, yeah. it tended to just infect them That's n- and make it worse. Good. And mm. then you couldn't get a lot of it off and it would seep into the wound. So... Oh. They stopped okay. using it for that, but they thought, hey, we'll, get, we'll crack on with the rest of it. Yeah. If you need glue, if you're doing a bit of model airfix in, in 19th <laughs> I'll century. Just dig a birch pit. <laughs> in Tsarist Russia. <laughs> okay. The inventors of super glue. Now, this sounds <clears throat> interesting. I'm not going to say it sounds plausible, but it sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. I have lots of questions. Go for them. Siberia to me is tundra. It is. It's enormous. And in fact, this. Krasnoyarsk Krai region is about 2 million square kilometres, so it's massive. Okay. 
And tundra to me means no trees. They are birch trees. The birch are very resilient. Okay, see now I would have thought if there was trees, there would be like conifers. They would be sort of... Well, I, I don't know the, the full fauna of Siberia. <laughs> I, I didn't go... I'm just putting my A-level geography to good use here. <laughs> For the first time since you did your A-level. Because <laughs> there is a thing called the tree line, which is like the start of like the temporal region. Mm-hmm. And I thought Siberia was sort of poor. Well, it's it's a very incredibly large. It goes all the way down to kind of Kazakhstan, northern, oh really, kind of mid Asia. So it's sort uh, of like the steppes. Yeah, it's this is where you my evidence of not having an A level geography mm. is coming to the fore. Mm-hmm. But because Russia stretches all the way across Asia, like yeah. the southern the southern parts of Russia, like that's Siberia. Yeah, as well. Oh right, so it okay. Stretches right oh. down to the bottom. So with Siberia, I thought it was like. Is it like a region of Russia? Like, like Yeah, it is. It's just like, it's basically... Is it, is it sort of it's, politically defined region or is it just sort of... I don't know, actually. You I know think, how we um, would say like the highlands? Yeah, I think it's actually a geographical region with broken up into smaller regions. Right, but it's, okay. it's basically Siberia is slap bang the middle bit of, oh. of Russia. See, I'm learning already here. Mm. All of that being said, I still don't think this is true. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tribe's name? The Dolgans. The Dolgans. Okay. I'm trying to get my linguistics head on that and how Russian that sounds. It sounds plausible, I guess. Yeah. It does sound very Doctor Who-ish. <laughs> and not even sort so of So are you accusing Who. me of watching Doctor Who? <laughs> stealing take, a, stealing, stealing a name. the name of a tribe from Doctor Who and making up some concoction about burning birch trees to produce tar. Mm. Now, th- uh, there is some plausibility in here in that tree sap is very sticky. Mm. And, um, our, again, our science knowledge is blisteringly good. <laughs> and I imagine that burning it uh, would somehow reduce it into an even stickier <laughs> substance. So, yeah, I can imagine that there are sort of natural adhesives. Mm-hmm. But would it really produce tar or like a glue-like substance? From just the bark. Just the bark and dirt. Dirt. It's the dirt mm. that makes all the difference. <laughs> That's the tagline when they're selling this clue. <laughs> it's the dirt that makes all the difference. Um, okay. And this tribe existed for thousands and thousands, thousands of years. Of, yeah, it's a prehistoric tribe. And they were only discovered in the 19th century. Well, they knew, kind of knew of them, but obviously with Siberia being such a massive area, it's kind of like, you just well, you know, there's that tribe over there, but we don't really talk to them. We don't have any dealings with them. Right. Okay. But this whole time they'd been producing this substance. This glue. It's not, right. something, it's not something that would come up in a conversation if you just happened True. to be chatting to them. Say, oh, True. do you know I make some really good glue, you know? So how, uh, the Crimean War thing, how how did the glue come about at that point? Like, what? why did it... Well, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't a di- there was no direct correlation between the two. It's just the fact that at the time, Tsarist Russia was expanding further east. Mm. It just happened to be at the same time that the Crimean, that war, the Crimean war was on. So they thought... right. Well, we're in a lot of wars at the minute. Let's see if we can use this birch glue okay. as, as wound sealant. Okay. This still just isn't sitting very good with me. Mm. I don't know. Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to call this. You sure? Yeah. I'm going to say that this is BS. This entire fact is BS. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Hold on back. Wait, now, hang on. Now that I know this is a lie, I really want to go to town on this. Where did you get the tribe name from? I think the tribe is a real name. Really? Yeah. Okay. And the regions, I think I literally thought, right, what's, oh, Russia, Google Russia, Siberia, tribe. Don't right, okay. Build a fact around that. And were they, is it true that they've existed for thousands and thousands of years? 
Now that, I don't know, but let's think, oh no, that was it. I've written this down, the reason why I picked them, because I was trying to Google language facts to throw you off. I was, oh, right, okay. I was first trying to pick obscure languages, because the Dolgan tribe, there's only 7,000 speakers of their language. Right. So I was thinking about trying to use some of their words right, to try okay. and f- to give you a, build a fact around that. But then I thought, yeah, he's too good with language. I'll, I'll concoct some nonsense to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> invented super glue yeah. out of burning birch bark. <laughs> I think that is that the burning birch bark is a method of getting a, a sort of adhesive, but it's right. not anywhere near like super glue or anything. It's right. Just okay. Very basic. Right. Because no. it would just be sort of like cinders. Mm. Okay. No, it was a good. It was a good stab. Good attempt. It just didn't sit very well with me. Good try. Yeah. The Dolgans. Well, hey, shout out to any Dolgans. <laughs> okay. Right. I need to pull a point back here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm kind of going history, which I know is your Ooh, sort of. I'm, I'm in your ballpark. So the fact is that one of Queen Victoria's wedding presents was the world's biggest cheddar cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Right. Oh, oh, no. No questions so far. You Um, just keep going. Okay. So do you know when Queen Victoria married Prince Albert? Ooh. 1830 something? Oh, not bad. 1840. Mm. I thought it was later than that, but no, Mm. it's 1840. Uh, St. James's Palace. It was a huge affair, obviously, attended by royals from all over Europe. Um, she set the trend for wearing white on wedding days. Really? Yeah. Before is that, then, is that, um, is that actually true? That is true. <laughs> uh, before then, um, other colours were sort of really popular, mm. especially pale blue, apparently. But she wore white. She wasn't the first royal to wear white on a wedding day, but because she, she was so influential, mm. um, yeah, she kind of set the trend for it, and we've had it ever since. Yeah. But yes, it, so it was a massive do, obviously. Um, and gifts were sent from all over the kingdom and from all over the empire as well, including the world's biggest cheddar cheese. I can't wait to get questions. Do you want some stats about the cheddar go on, cheese? Go on. It was octagonal. That's a lot of effort to mm-hmm. make it octagonal. Um, it used the milk of 750 cows. Was it just like a tiny bit from each one? It's <laughs> <laughs> just one little squirt and then they were off. Or was it just um, one overworked cow? <laughs> milked by fif- 50... Mi- <laughs> 50 milkmaids. <laughs> Were they all doing this at the same time? On I these don't know. Cows? Like, did they have a production line going? This was, uh, yeah. Someone wrote the 12 Days of Christmas. After this happened. <laughs> 50 no. milkmaids milking cows. The biggest cheese wheel. Um, yeah, the uh, cheese itself was two feet deep and uh, nine feet in circumference. And it weighed 1,100 weights. This thing was massive. That's about 1,200 pounds. So mm. about half a ton. Jeez. And of course, it had the coat of arms stamped on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> so so no, continue. So many no, questions. I've got too many. I can't see four questions trying to come out at once there. Yeah. But no, I'm going to wait till the end. Yeah. Continue. Okay, so this was made in <laughs> uh, a village in Somerset called West Pennard. And it was made by the sort of local farmers there. But just when this fact can't get any stranger. <laughs> Somebody wrote a song about the cheese. <laughs> Do you have the lyrics? I don't have all of the lyrics oh. because the song has at least five verses. Jesus that I've been Christ. Able to track down. But um, it was written by someone called T. Dibden. And the <laughs> was, music... that his, was that his street name? <laughs> little, T. little T. Dibden? <laughs> um, I'm guessing the T stands for Thomas, as it did with everybody in the 19th century. Uh, um, and the uh, music was written by someone called T. Williams. So we're probably looking at two <laughs> Thomases here. Um, 
but yeah, it had five verses, and it was such an achievement that the sort of it was such an achievement to write a song about cheese. The, no, the cheese the was making... an achievement. Gotcha. Um, that it it was sort of commemorated with the song. So verse five mm-hmm. of this song is these penna dames. They're talking about the uh, milkmaids there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then built a cheese the like was never seen was made and pressed and fit to please <laughs> our gracious lady queen do you know what the the melody was i don't i'm guessing it was some sort of rap could you give us could you give us a melody to that just do you want me to sing just if 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 that's just, not gonna happen uh... <laughs> but yeah that was that was verse five so um yeah uh, of the song i don't know very much um, but yeah, that was that was certainly some of the lyrics. So this cheese was made in West Pennard by these Pennard. Was dins. there nothing else to do in West Pennard? Prob- they were probably milking cows for a good few years. <laughs> uh, it was then taken to Ilminster, a town, and oh, just um, sort of was a cheese tour. Is uh, it like well, they've got to take it to London? So the first stop on this trip was Ilminster, where it was put on display. Uh, the song was sung, and a <laughs> crowd of people came to view the cheese. Um, and then it was taken to London uh, to Buckingham Palace and presented to the Queen. She was understandably very impressed. Oh, of course she would be. Yeah, and asked that the cheese be put on display and admission be charged so that people can come and see the, this cheese. And the idea was that this would raise money for local good causes. Right, that was a roller coaster yeah, from start this, to finish there. It's a story that starts small but gets bigger and bigger, almost like the production of cheese itself. <laughs> How long was this cheese on display in London? I don't know. What a waste to not eat any of it. Did anyone take a bite out of it on the way over? I would have done if I was there. Yeah, but like it's breaking little blocks yeah. off. Like... I'd imagine that afterwards it was sort of broken up and given out to people. When, what month was she married, Queen Victoria? Um, we are looking at the 10th of February. Oh, I was going to say, because if it was height, I wouldn't fancy logging cheese across the country in the height of summer. No, if it was August, yeah. you'd want to be stood <laughs> next to a half a ton of cheddar cheese. Quick, quick, put it on display. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I want to do on the hottest day of the year? Stand next to half a ton of cheese. And pay for the privilege of it. <laughs> now, you see, you might be getting me again because you put another little song. You like Tolkien putting songs on every yeah, other page. You know, poems. just throw them in. But that doesn't sound like your writing. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a genuine mm-hmm. cheese song. I can't believe I just said that. There are so many. <laughs> so Lil T... And L- Lil T Lil- and his friend, uh, also Lil T. No, uh, T Dibden uh, wrote the lyrics, and the tune was written by T Williams. I think that's. I think this is very. I think this is true. Actually, I've, I'm. I'm trusting the gut mm-hmm. on this one because it sounds like something the Victorians would do. Because mm. there wasn't very much else to do. Exactly, apart from go and invade other countries mm-hmm. and um, die in factories. So they had. To- <laughs> <laughs> well. I've never been a fan of the Victorian era, you know. It's yeah, never, it's never I can a, tell. It's never been a fun era to study for me. But yeah, this sounds like something they'd do. I'm ready to go for a guess now. Okay. Definitely true. Because if this is false, you would have had to sit down and think about cheese. I wrote a Dr. Seuss book. You did? Just for the sake of this podcast. <laughs> okay. What's okay. the answer, Joe? It's definitely true. It is true. Ah, yes. Yeah. I, now, I really want to find out what the rest of this song was. <laughs> so you can sing it. Yeah. But no, that's completely true. Yeah. What it, that's a really fun fact, actually. It's yeah. just because it's so... It's like, why did they even think a giant octagonal block of cheese was a good yeah. wedding gift? Uh, why octagonal? Because cheddar cheese is circular. Maybe they made it octagonal so they could easier to transport it, maybe? I don't know. 
but that make that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't, because it's sure it's easier to roll a wheel than it is an octagon. So if you get uh, married one day, Paul, I know exactly the gift I'm going to get you. Is it 750 cows so I can make this myself? <laughs> no, it's nothing because I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> On to the next facts. Okay, Paul, it's now 3-1, and I'm thinking I'm going to get an almost clean sweep on you with this. I'm not, I'd say now the best I can hope for is a draw. I've gone back into history for me last one, because it's, it's like a safety, it's like a little safety blanket mm. for us. I like, I like my history facts. Okay. And I want to tell you about a former member of the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. who, he was a representative for Ohio from 1858 to 1863. Okay. So we're talking U.S. Civil War. Okay. So a shout out to any U.S. listeners. Mm. who might call me on my complete ignorance <laughs> of anything US Civil War based. I'm putting that caveat apology in now. Mm. So this, it's actually, it's not really his time during the Civil War. It's how he died is what we're focusing in on today. Right, okay. His name is Clement, or his name was Clement Vallandigham. Okay. Now, before we kind of touch on his life, I want to go straight to the fact on how he died, because it's quite a, an unusual death. Okay. After his career in the House of Representatives, he became a lawyer, and he was trying to prove his client was not guilty of a murder from a barroom brawl, because he claimed the person who died shot himself by accident by misfiring a gun in his own pocket. So, right. to prove this point, Clement... Put a gun in his pocket. He thought it. He thought the gun wasn't loaded, and he said, "I will now prove to you that you can accidentally discharge a gun in the same manner as the victim did." Okay. So as he did it, it snagged on his jacket, and mm-hmm. the gun fired into his leg, and then he died. So his client got off completely scot free, but he died. Okay, right. But kind of before that, though, he'd had an, he's had an interesting life before that. He was a Democrat in Ohio, but he was a proud supporter of slavery and outspoken critic of Abraham Lincoln. He claimed Lincoln was trying to be to create a, a monarchy through the Civil War, that he would be King Lincoln I after that. That has a ring to it. Uh, he was he, he traveled around the place. He lived in Bermuda, went to Canada, became a lawyer, then obviously died in the courtroom. Okay, so he had quite the life. Quite the life. Retired from politics, became a lawyer. Mm. Retired from pro-slavery politics. Well, there's, there's a cause. Okay. So what year was this court case? It was in 1871, the court case. Right. And he was trying to prove that you can... Accidentally shoot yourself. Because basically in this court case, his defendant was involved in a barroom brawl with this mm-hmm. guy. And he was saying, you've murdered this guy, you've shot him, and you've killed him. But yeah. he said, hey, I, didn't, I didn't touch the guy. So right. Clement, and then saying that the guy's gun went off. In his pocket. In and his to pocket. prove this point, he reenacted the barroom scene. Right. Because he, he did this from a kneeling position as well, to show that it's very very plausible that you could shoot yourself in the leg if you try to get a gun out of your pocket. Try, oh, so he's trying to get it out of his pocket. Trying to get the gun out of his pocket. Right. So it wasn't... Ah, uh, oh, right, because I was thinking that maybe, like, he'd just been sat down and moved his leg or something and it had gone off. <laughs> He's trying to get the gun out. <laughs> the most sensitive trigger. <laughs> no, no. So he's trying to get the gun out of his pocket. Yeah, trying to get the gun out of his pocket, presumably to fire at yeah. Clement's defendant. Yeah. But instead of firing at the defendant, the gun went off in his pocket. Okay. And so how did he die? Was it an infection or was it a blood loss or something? Uh, it didn't say. It could be blood loss, I'm right. imagining. Because there's an awful lot goes on in your leg. Mm. One of the main arteries in there. Yeah. Okay. So that had happened and he was trying to prove that it could happen. Yes. By putting a gun in his pocket. But he didn't think it was loaded. Didn't think it was loaded. Did he not think to check? (laughs) He he evidently didn't Mm. think to check. Shot himself, died. The judge said, yeah, you know what? 
That's a really good point. <laughs> okay, look, it can happen. <laughs> it can happen. Case dismissed. <laughs> You're free. Right, okay. Now, this sounds plausible. Mm. The era, yeah, that makes it sound plausible, definitely. 1870s? Yes, and the fact that you could bring a loaded gun as a lawyer into a into court. Into a courtroom. Well, you can probably still do that today. You know what America's mm. like? <laughs> Sorry, America. <laughs> yeah, that does sound plausible. And he was trying to demonstrate that it could happen. Mm. So I don't... See, now I don't know anything about guns. Had the gun been empty, mm. how would he have proved... Like, would there, be, would there be like a click or like a noise? I imagine just uh, something like that to say, oh, look, the firing mechanism is kicked off. It's kicked there off. There it goes. And it was a full bullet. It wasn't like a blank. No, it was full bullet. Right, Okay. And shot himself in the leg and died in the courtroom? Yeah, uh, didn't die in the courtroom. I think he died later. I've not written it down here, but a couple right. of days later he died. Okay, okay. A heck of a way to go. Mm. And I'm sure his client would have been <laughs> oddly happy. <laughs> he wouldn't have to pay his lawyer either. It's great. <laughs> oh, a bit of gallows humor. Oh, it's win-win. <laughs> um, okay, <clears throat> yeah, uh, this sounds plausible. What's the dude's name? Clement Vallandigham. Now, see, this is the only sticking point that I have here, is that so sounds like a name you could have made up. I can imagine that you're going Clement, that's a sort of baby <laughs> 19th century American name. And then you live like... Are you accusing me of Googling unusual surnames? I, I'm probably accusing you of going, I think I'll set this in Ohio. And then you'll have looked up like who was in the House of Representatives representing Ohio and just taken someone's Admit. surname. <laughs> Van Dingham. Vallandingham. Vallandingham. Mm. All one word. Yes. Clement Vallandigham. That does sound like something you make <laughs> up. The rest of it sounds really plausible. <sighs> okay. I'm going to go with my gut. Although I think the name could totally be made up by you, I think this could be true. I think it's... Final answer? <sighs> yeah. I'm going to say this is true. Yes, this is true. It is true. Wow. Yeah. The name isn't made up. I think Clement it's Vallandigham. This might be my second Ohio fact. <laughs> as well. So get ready next week for a third Ohio fact. <laughs> wow. That, that, wow, that poor bloke. Yeah. Shot himself. Well, he was pro slavery, so I don't know if he was that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That poor of a bloke. Well, yeah, heck of a way to go. Good yeah. grief. Good one off in his leg. Bang. Proved the point. I wish all, more court cases were that interesting. <laughs> who, who needs lawyers? He won the case, at least. <laughs> Okay, I need to secure a draw here. Um, so I'm going back to literature. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay, so George Orwell, mm. uh, 1984. Yes. Room 101. Yes, now this I do know. Yeah, have you read 1984? Yes. Do you like no, it? I haven't. I read Animal Farm. Oh, right. Okay. Which is a completely different book. It's a completely different book, yeah. <laughs> this is about a different book. The real Room 101. Mm hmm. Uh, do you know what Room 101 is in, in the book? It's some sort of place where they send dissidents or something. Yes. And, and they're uh, never you, to be seen again. You're tortured there with your worst nightmares mm. and sort of broken down by full So my things. Room 101 would be sitting with you. <laughs> <laughs> you are rinsing me. <laughs> should point out that we are really good friends. <laughs> my Room 101 would be a load of Haribo that's just out of reach. <laughs> That truly is torture. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Room 101 is a torture chamber where people are sort of tormented with things. And the idea is that you break the dissidents down. Mm. In the book, Winston Smith, who's the protagonist, his 
thing is rats. Mm. And so he's sort of tortured with those. But the real Room 101, or certainly mm. the, the Room 101 that Orwell based that on, mm. um, was the BBC. Orwell wrote 1984 in 1947 to 48 when he was ill with TB, which mm. I didn't know. And it was published in 1949. The idea is he came up with the date by switching the numbers around mm. in the year. But a few years before that, from 1941 to 1943, he worked for the Ministry of Information mm. uh, during the Second World War and produced programmes for the Eastern Service radio that the BBC put on. Uh, so he had meetings in a conference room in a broadcasting house and the number of this conference room was 101. Interesting. But these meetings were incredibly long and incredibly boring and were based about what they could and couldn't broadcast. Mm. So there were sort of censorship uh, meetings. Uh, and Orwell hated them and he didn't like the people who were there. And so he stored, we think, he stored this number in mind for the most horrific thing that you could mm. imagine <laughs> around in the book. <laughs> so yeah, sadly, the room doesn't exist anymore. Mm. When Broadcasting House was modernised... In the early 2000s, it was pulled down in 2003. But before it was pulled down, a plaster cast was taken of the entire room as sort of, pos- <laughs> sort of posterity. How, how big was this room? It was probably... Um, it, it, I've seen a picture of this plaster cast and it was probably about the size of the room that we're in now. For listeners who can't For see listeners, the, the it, it looks, It's about 10 foot square. <laughs> Podcasting being a very audio medium. Yeah. Podcasting gold describing the room that you're sat in right Oh, now. how big's the room? Oh, yeah. about the room we're in now. <laughs> so, yeah, a, a, um, a cast was taken of it for sort of mm. posterity because it had secured its place in literature. And it, the cast itself was displayed at the V&A Museum. So this is literally, it would just be a 10-foot square room. It, yeah, yeah. Why, why would they display some, something so boring? Because it secured its place in history. Because mm. it inspired um, George Orwell. Oh, I'd, I'd, uh, see, I, would, I believed you up to the point where you said they made a plaster cast of the. How, how would they? How? How did they? How did they get the root? How did they get the plaster cast out of the room? Because if they're putting plaster on all the walls and the ceiling and that, mm. oh, plaster cast done. How do we get this out? Is you've literally yeah. just put plaster on a wall then. I don't know anything about the plaster cast making process. I have two yeah. suggestions. The first is that it was probably done panel by panel mm. and sort of boxed off and then filled with plaster. Ooh, and then quick off. thinking on those lies, Jones. Or like that. Um, they just filled the room with plaster <laughs> and then took the building down around it. <laughs> so then it would, <laughs> like it a mold. It would just be a box, a, a giant box. A big white box. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you had me right up until then. I just... Something screams about no one would make a plaster cast of a room. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe take down the room number on the door and like i'll take the door as a like a piece of memorabilia but mm. making a plaster cast of the room mm. and then you wouldn't go to the V&A museum <laughs> go and see that why the victoria and albert museum i don't know why not the... it was the first museum i came up with i mean uh, <laughs> no i don't know <laughs> oh it has a ring of truth to it like i think i don't know it's, it's starting to ring a bell actually that story the original room 101 now that i think about it i'm sure i I saw it on some... There is actually another theory that it was based on the headmaster's study of the Mm. school that he attended when he was a kid. Mm. But we think that that's kind of unfounded and it was probably Mm. a myth that came along later. So this is the origin of why it was that number. 
So did Orwell never definitively say that? I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe he did, but um, no. This is the um, this is the story. I think this is complete BS. First, I think because you've just said that fact. Oh, there's another theory when you've just come with this whole. Yeah. Oh, this is the complete and total truth. Well, there's a, a yeah. The, um, the thing about his headmaster study is a sort of myth that mm. he, he didn't like his school days. Mm. So that that's kind of come from that. But this is the hundred and one. Right. I'm going to call this now. I'm ready to guess. Okay. Complete BS. No one would make a plaster cast of a room and somehow manage to get it out of that room. <laughs> okay. BS? Yeah. You know this is for the match? Yep. It's completely true. <laughs> <laughs> How did they do it? I don't know. And I tried to find out about it. It was actually a, a, a famous artist who did it. I can't remember her name now. I wish I'd written it down. But uh, yeah, it was a famous artist who did it. And there's a picture of it on display at the V&A where, where I got sign of what oh. it looked like and how big it was from. But other than that, I don't know very much about it. It was on display from 2003 to 2004. Where is it now? Has it just been... I don't know. It's probably been... Chopped in of... a, a bloody landfill site with any... Probably just been... Well, that was a pointless exercise, yeah, wasn't it? Broke it up and washed away because it was a bit boring. Oh, look, it's a plastic cast of Room 101. Oh, how, how thrilling. <laughs> it's literally just a big white box. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's why I thought it was BS. Yeah. But no, they, they did that. And they, that is the sort of definitive 101 story. The, the the myth is that it was his headmaster study, but no, this mm. is the the uh, understood theory of where he got the number from. Well, you've pulled me to another draw. Finally, I get the points back right at the end. <laughs> So, yeah, is that the second draw we've had? Uh, I think so. Three all. To be honest, the scoring system we've put in place mm. is so all over the place. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the end of the last episode of this season, we'll, we'll put it all together. Yeah, and work things out. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and catch you next time.